It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Crash MotoGP podcast, episode 32. And it's a Christmas special. So Merry Christmas. My name is Harry Benjamin uh, alongside me. And well, one is suitably dressed uh, with Christmas jumpers, Santa and a tree to boot. Of course, the legend that is Keith Hewitt. But we're both bitterly disappointed if you're watching this in vision because Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren, despite given fair warning, has not turned up with anything Christmassy. Pete, you're clearly not in the Christmas spirit yet, are you? This is my Christmas spirit. I mean, I just have an alternative uh, T-shirt. How do, how do we go spirit. with that bar humbug? Exactly. <laughs> I thought Keith's really he's, he's brought it all out there. How yeah, he has. It, it looks like a scene for the nativity play behind yeah. it. I, I, I was a bit. I was a bit worried when it, when I got this jumper because it says wanted December twenty fifth male. You see, I'm inclusive. <laughs> It's one of those difficult things, isn't it? When you when you you're expected to dress up, and then Pete turns up. The only um, the, the only factor that I will let Pete off with, of course, uh, living in a Buddhist country, they don't <laughs> tend to uh, celebrate uh, Christmas in the same way that we do. So um, you're obviously you're obviously integrating yeah. very well, Pete. Is all I can say. Thank you, Keith. That's kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very glad that uh, at least Keith's made the effort for a change. I know we've had a bit of time off, Pete, but come on. This is as festive as my office ever gets, Harry, I can tell you. Well, if that's just your office, I'd love to see the rest of your house. I bet it's full-on uh, nativity <laughs> scene around the corner. Very you nice. To, you, you also have to remember that I have four children. Ah, yes. <laughs> so the spirit is very much not quite dead yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, a pleasure to see you both again. And thank you as well all for tuning in to our Christmas special. Uh, before we get into the crux of it, though, Keith, you've been out and about, haven't you? Motorcycle Live's been taking place up in uh, it's the Birmingham Many Sea, isn't it, in, in the UK? How's that been? Uh, pretty much successful, I would say. Um, it's one of those situations where you feel for organisers that are committed to that kind of thing at the time of year. That, you know, ICMA, we had the big Italian show in ICMA over in Italy, obviously, um, which is a massive show and, and big launches of new models and stuff like that. That seems to be the show for that kind of thing nowadays. So the British show at the NEC, as you say, which is really easy to get to. I mean, you've got a train station right in an airport right next door. You don't even have to wear a jacket because you can get to everywhere without you know, unless you go in your car and you've got to walk walk to get a bus to get in from the car parks, of course. But why go on in your car when you've got all these trains and planes and things that can pull up right by the front door effectively? But talking to Father Christmas, it does feel like um, there's quite a lot of Santas in there in that the demographic is unbelievably old. Uh, it's a shock. I mean, I fit in brilliantly, as you might imagine. <laughs> but it, it, it is a situation that we have now, isn't it, that the, 
The only people that have got money to spend are your old folks, it would seem, at the minute. And, and it is a very, very grey kind of atmosphere in those places. There, Of course, there are youngsters there. I mean, racers are there and, and the like doing their duty. But I think the thing that struck me when I walked in the door and the first wander around that I had was that it is, you know, it's an over 40s type situation at the moment. And I think that's really indicative of where we are in, in the country regarding kind of money and the like and, and so on. And the fact that <laughs> virtually no one was wearing any masks. I mean, pandemic, no. what bloody pandemic? There doesn't seem to be one in Birmingham, that's for sure. But um, those are the, the the initial impressions. Some of the new brands that were there were interesting. We've got two-stroke bikes and Langan and stuff like that that were interesting. You've got some of the old-fashioned stuff. I mean, one that I absolutely took to was the full Essex Hayabusa. How can you have a motorcycle like a Hayabusa dressed in white with chrome? It, I think I saw you tweet that, yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I, I, I had to rush back and get my ankle chain. I just thought, I've got, I've got to have my ankle chain and my medallion on to ride that thing. I mean, it, I mean, the, the very cheek of it, just it, it was wonderful. But there were lots of other machines there to, to worth taking a look at. The stage show was good. James Whittam does a great show up on the stage. Um, so you obviously take part in that throughout the week. We had the big BSB day on Saturday, the British Superbikes day on Saturday, where everybody took part. And of course, at last, they did a, a, a an official Fred Clark retirement thing as well. The circuit commentator for some 45 years. I mean, Fred, he's never admitted to his age, but Fred Clark obviously has retired from doing the trackside commentary next year in, in at BSB and other, other uh, series. But um, finally, he's rolled over in good health. Looks well, Fred, but I'm really pleased that they made an effort to sort of herald his achievement over the years because, well, anybody, including people my age, you know, you first thing you do when you walk into a track is hear Fred Clark. Um, and to not hear Fred Clark in 2022 is going to seem really, really strange. Um, I, I don't know who's going to be taking over. You know, people have said, are you taking over from Fred Clark? No one can take over from Fred Clark. A, there's no one good enough. B, there's no one prepared to make that kind of incredible effort for detail that Fred uh, used to make. So I think that that's you know, a bit of a sad tear in the eye to, to, to learn that Fred is not officially going to be there anymore for the coming year. Anything else that I noticed at um, the show? I think that, that, that people like Royal Enfield are going big. Now, I, I don't really understand the concept, I've got to say, of Royal Enfield. It's, uh, it's, it's like new retro um i kind of i don't get that myself um but that's just me i like to see new innovation and all swing and all dancing brand new stuff and of course what certain manufacturers have gone for is some of this more retro type thing i mean there is a massive market for it and that may well be it feeds into what i said when i started on this is that you know the gray factor there are a lot of people with money that don't want fast motorbikes because a they're probably not capable of riding them which is a, a whole new Harry on rambling again, I know, but I mean, some of these motorbikes, I've raced motorbikes that aren't as fast as the bloody things you can buy for the road nowadays. And they are tricker than trick, you know, traction control, all the electronics you could need actually for, for a road bike, because you're more likely to need them on a road bike because of your skill level. And, and the fact that the roads are varying grip and the like, but, um, Personally, I mean, 90% of people that buy fast motorbikes aren't capable of riding fast motorbikes. And, and it's, a, it's a bone of contention for me in the first place that, you, you know, you, the reason we have some of the accidents we have on the road is because they're riding something that they're probably not capable of, of riding at the kind of speeds that the things go in first and second gear. You're already up to your speed limits in, in two gears before you've got the other bloody four to go. 
Um, so it's a, a kind of it's great to have the show back, and congratulations to the show. Motorcycle Live, I'll go every year, whatever the circumstances. And it was good to see probably the hundred thousand people that that went there over the week. Um, plenty of show to see. With a few less people there, it's even better because you get to see everything there is and roll on next year. May they be successful again. Yeah, well, it sounded like a, a really nice uh, time and, and good to see those sort of shows coming back as well. It's interesting, actually, you say about the grey factor. It sort of ties into something I wanted to talk about as well a little later on, but I'll, I may as well talk about it now. Um, and we've discussed it before. Obviously, it has been confirmed since we last spoke that um, it's particularly with MotoGP that they will be doing or they have done for this year a, a docu series, a sort of drive to survive version for the two wheeled world, which uh, I think is going to be uh, on Amazon Prime in multiple regions uh, from next year. Do you think something like that, considering the uh, the quite hefty impact it's had in the Formula One world in terms of bringing not just new audiences, but uh, absolutely younger audiences, do you think that will have the same effect uh, for the two-wheeled world as well? Yes, yes, in short, absolutely it will, because I think that not quite as bad as in um, Formula One. Formula One with Bernie, Bernie shut down social media and all the, the trendy bits and pieces and the way that kids communicate. So I think that, you know, Formula One had a much bigger opportunity to expand their footprint and have done so. I mean, this this last year has been... And, and the fact that they're, they're quite lucky in Formula 1 that they've they've got some great young drivers. Lando Norris. What's not to like about Lando Norris? He's a Valentino Rossi fan and so on and so forth. He's a great kid. George Russell goes to Mercedes next year alongside bloody Hamilton. You know, they've got some great youngsters coming through and that's going to encourage, particularly on these shores, British fans to to get more involved. With the bikes, we've always had social media. People have always been involved in social media. Um, and I think that the film side of things will expand that, of course. And I think that Pete will answer this as well, because I know it's a drum he likes to beat, regarding the, the age limits changing as well. I think what it will do is it will encourage parents to not shut down the opportunities for kids. I think that what you do as a parent, quite naturally, is shut down something that you don't think you are going to be capable of either funding or seeing through. And with kids, and obviously the, the the danger factor, is my child mature enough to be racing a 100-mile-an-hour motorbike? You know, it's something that we all as, as as parents are a bit careful about, you know. Even when your kid gets, a, you know, goes out on the road for the first time in, a, in an old banger, you know, you worry like mad about, you know, their safety. So I think that the age limits for for Grand Prix that are changing, that may encourage more parents to perhaps, you know, open that door a little bit wider than than they might have done in the past. I'm guessing, because I've got all girls, and thankfully none of them want to go racing motorbikes, because having watched the uh, the rapid rate of ageing of any friend that I've got that's got <laughs> kids that are racing, <laughs> I was thinking Neil McKenzie. Neil McKenzie looked 500 when he was only about 30, <laughs> just because his boys were coming through. Um, he's only just recovering now, but the stress levels of, of having a child in a, in a in a sport like ours is 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 I would imagine bloody high. It's interesting, Keith, what you said earlier as well about people riding these enormously fast road bikes. And as you say, the age limit will now change that. You know, if, if a parent has a situation where the, you know, their, their son or daughter says, well, I'm buying one of these road bikes or I'm going racing, you know, the parent might actually think, you know what, it is safer to be on the racetrack. And, and exactly as you say, so maybe it will change the whole way that people look at motorcycle racing. It'll actually be seen as, you know, that's a safer option, given that you can't, you can't prevent 
teenagers when they get to 16, 17, they can do what they want, can't they? And you'd rather at the end of the day have them in a controlled environment if they are going to have a bike than riding one of these enormously fast road bikes. That is rather worrying when you mention that phrase, teenagers can do what they want. Yeah, we have that round here every single bloody day, <laughs> yeah. I can tell you, without any doubt about it. But I think that getting back to your art, the, your question originally, Ari, I think the film is good for, for, for the sport. There's no doubt about that. It's going to show it in a good light, um, providing it's not a crash bang wallop film, um, which I doubt it will be because there are certain controlling factors around that. I, I think it's going to be great for the sport. I think it's probably a good time for it as well, actually, because with, with Rossi sort of now no longer on the grid, the one name that people might have known about is not there to drag people in. So this is a good time for it to be expanding to brand new audiences, uh, I would imagine. Well, I think in the UK as well, with Michael Laverty's um, Vision Track um, yeah. MotoGP team and uh, Moto3 team, sorry, MotoGP. I'm, no, I'm ahead yet. of the game there, man. Yeah. That'll, that'll be next week's announcement, knowing Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the fact being that the Moto3 team, you know, you've got a British team that uh, is there for the for the ask. British team, British and Irish team. I mean, it's, it's always a slight conflict, isn't it, when you when you start talking about Northern Ireland and and and, and the Republic of Ireland. Let's call it the. Do we call it British Isles? Is Ireland the British Isles? Oh, yeah. This is the whole trouble, isn't it? Really, but Irish, <laughs> English, Welsh, Scottish, whatever. Michael Laverty's got the team for you, effectively. If you've got talent, he can move you through now, through his academy through the lower classes and then into Moto3, which is the entry level, obviously, for MotoGP um, and where everybody wants to go. So uh, mm. I think there's the, the timing of quite a lot of this stuff, Ari, at the moment is really good. You know, it's it's all looking really positive and encouraging uh, for, for next year. But I suppose considering this is our last show for 2021, uh, I thought it would be the perfect time to run down all of the teams and riders and just have a little look back at their season um, and for some it was their last ever for some just their first and perhaps ones to remember and also perhaps ones to very much forget for some riders um, I'd like to start I'm going to go through the constructors championship but backwards so I'd like to start with Aprilia um, if I may a year I suppose full of positives in which to build on Keith Alicia Spargrove's fantastic podium in Silverstone and of course the signing of Maverick Vinales who looked like he was really getting up to speed more and more towards the end of this season concerns for me they had concessions this year so they're going as good as they could possibly go by the end of the year they had concessions so they could make changes um, they will have them again next year but the log jam of development for all the other teams is um, is removed come 2022. I say that, and then I'm going to contradict myself straight away. And yet Yamaha turn up at the test at the end of this year with nothing, absolutely nothing of any real use. Fabio Quattararo, you know, said the bike is no different. There's nothing. They've nothing. They've improved. So, you know, there's there's me been banging this massive drum about. Next year, 2022, really looking forward to all these innovations that are going to be coming and all the changes that are going to be technically and within the rules, obviously. You know, it's a case of who's moved everything forward. Um, and yet it looks like Yamaha haven't moved anything at the moment, unless it's so behind in their production of these trick bits and, and, and the like. I mean, the rules haven't changed. So they've still got to work within the rules, which, which are quite tight anyway. Um, but normally, you know, we see it every week with bloody Ducati bring something, don't they? That, that's that's slightly um, slightly trick or or whatever it might be. Um, so it is going to be very very interesting next year. Getting back to where we are with Aprilia, Aprilia at the moment, I think might get left behind a bit next year. I just do. 
I think obviously the, the the podium at Silverstone that was the highlight, wasn't it? If you're going to you know one single moment, it's pretty obvious there. I think the, the the low point of this year, probably the last few races, wasn't it? The form just it seemed like they struggled in the cooler temperatures. And that caught them a bit off guard because they'd had a bike that actually was was fairly consistent all year. It was a you know top eight, top six, and as we saw, capable of even podiums for most of the year. And then it dropped away again. And, and that's going to be a concern because to make that next step, which is what Vinales will be expecting as well, you need a bike that's going to work throughout the full season. So they need to get on top of that. Um, as Keith says, they'll be the only manufacturer with concessions. So they have a bit more breathing room than Yamaha, who the clock is ticking, as Keith said. You know, they've got the two tests to come early next year, and then that's it. You're going racing with the engine, whatever you've got. Um, you know, Aprilia, they don't quite have the gun to their head in that way in that they can still develop their engine during next year. Uh, but I think I think some people might be surprised that, in a way, Vinales, what was it? I think Aleish beat Vinales in, in all five races. So I think Aleish actually impressed some people. I think people thought, you know what, give, give Vinales a few races. And remember, he had a couple of tests as well. And he would actually be ahead of Aleish. People weren't sure, were they, exactly what the... Because we had Salvador, he was a rookie alongside him. And I think, so I think Aleish, you know, impressed with his level this year. And, and I think that Maverick, he still needs to get comfortable with that bike. And that's a pretty mission during this winter. That's what they need to do. Because we all know what Maverick can do. I mean, you know, the guy won the first race and he's there on the podium again at Assen just before the, the split with Yamaha. So I, I think can't, me, I can't see the patience lasting very long, Pete, when it comes to Maverick Vinales. I mean, I think that Aprilia neither have the money or the time to be messing around with somebody's... Um, head if it drops i just can't i i'd sing the song i feel trouble ahead you know it's um mm. it's one of those isn't it i mean this other thing is of course are we going to see riders signing before the, even the first race of next year I mean, I mean you know it's a contract year we've seen it previously that the deals have been done in january haven't they so i mean I, i'd be surprised actually if, if there's not one top rider at least that signs before the first race and so you've got, as you say, guys like Vinales, if he's not happy, he needs to find somewhere pretty quick and he's going to have to impress. Even if he's not happy, he needs to do enough to get himself in a, in a team. Suzuki, you would imagine, he's thinking, I went quite well there before. Um, you know, there's, a, there's going to be a lot to play for from the very first test, not just for this season, but for the, the season after. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll touch a bit more on Maverick when we uh, get to the Yamaha as well, because he certainly provided us a lot of <laughs> talking points for this season. I think a word to um, Pete briefly on on the young Lorenzo Savadori as well, who had to sadly make way for Maverick. He remains a part of the team, Test and Wildcard rider, so he's still very much a part of that. But uh, a shame he had to make way, but it was sort of that was sort of written on the cards really. If Vinales becomes available, who's the one that's going to leave? It's going to be Savadori. Yeah, that's it. And he had that nasty incident where he hit Pedrosa's bike, didn't he, in Austria, and he had the ankle injury, and that sort of he, he forced to withdraw from Silverstone, and then Vidalis came in. So, but as you say, he, I think he just needs more time, doesn't he? And, he, and he's going to get that now because he, you know, he will be doing wild card races again and test riding, and Aprilia as part of the concessions they can do more testing. So, you know, I think that it's it's it, it's the right environment for him, but he's not he's not a young guy as such i think he's getting towards 27 28 now so he you know now's the time where he needs to show that he can be a full-time MotoGP gp rider and again put himself in the window for 2023 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Aprilia ended sixth in the constructors, ninth in the teams, as we said, a podium. Best results uh, in Silverstone with third with Aleish, uh, Salvadori 26th, Vinales 10th and Aspargo 8th in the uh, driver's standings at the end of it. Uh, let's move on to KTM, who were fifth uh, in the constructors. Tech 3, though, let's start with them. Tech 3, uh, 11th in the team, 76 points, of course, and a brand new rider lineup for next year. It was the last with Ika Laquona uh, and uh, uh, Danilo Petrucci. Uh, Laquona looked actually like he sort of got things together towards the final few races, didn't quite convert it in race results, but looked at times, didn't he, Keith, to be perhaps one of the faster of the KTM riders? Tough year for Hervé Poncheral and Guy Coulon. I've got to say, Tech 3, you know, the, the two main protagonists behind it, Poncheral and Goulon, are brilliant people. But they got themselves saddled with riders that Petrucci underperformed virtually all year. Uh, I, I, he, you know, he obviously, in the end, was going to the Dakar. Um, he'd made that decision, and he, his performances were very bad. So from a from a team's perspective, they were stuck with Petrucci for the rest of the year. Petrucci was in retirement mode from fairly early on, and his performances were below par, by miles below par, by his own standards, let alone anything else. So I feel a bit for, for Tech 3. Um, the Kwona... I feel a bit for Laquona because he's found himself not where he needs to be either because um, he did have some reasonable rides. I suppose when you're the second string of KTM's factory teams as well, you know, you've, you've got to perform. It's going to be an interesting year this coming year, that is for certain, because, you know, the riders they've got for next year, Tech 3 are, are capable of a lot more. KTM are capable of a lot more. KTM factory team was in trouble this year. Um, it didn't work for them at all in the end. A um, couple of flashes of brilliance from rider and team occasionally, but nothing like the consistency they want. But being the ruthless KTM that we know they are, I remember Zarco when he, he, he was being the gentleman and said, well, look, I'm going to leave you at the end of the year because it's not working for me. They said, well, okay, then off you go now. <laughs> Which I remember thinking, cool, that's pretty harsh considering he was <laughs> he was doing his best for the team. But they are fairly ruthless and, uh, you know, Sticking it to Mike Leitner or Mike Leitner sticking it to them is 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 quite a ripple through the KTM factory, I would say. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they um, how they make that work. I mean, they've got Guidotti's coming in. There's no doubt about his talent. He's a very amiable fellow. Francesco Guidotti has been been there, done that. Um, he's a real asset. But Mike Leitner is is more technical. I would I would have said, and he worked very well alongside. Danny Pedrosa, who's their test runner, obviously. And Pedrosa is a particularly good good rider as well. But I kind of question that. I don't think we were doing this podcast back that far, but um, it feels like we have. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of, I always question the, the, the employment of Danny Pedrosa, bearing in mind that he was half the weight of any normal rider, very short. His riding style demanded something almost unique from a motorbike. He couldn't make the Honda work in the way that he couldn't get enough front-end heat in the thing and so on and so on. Undoubtedly, massively fast rider, brilliant rider, Danny Pedrosa. I'm not dissing him at all. But you couldn't quite work it out. I couldn't quite work it out as a, as a test rider and a development rider for KTM. He obviously did a pretty good job, but he and Mike Leitner have worked together for for, for years, and, and maybe that was the pairing. Um but I think KTM have, have got a problem for next year. I think that they've they've really got to make that work. And and the first, you know, the idea of Tech Three being the the satellite, if you like, the independent KTM team, 
they didn't really draw much from that last year. It didn't really work out all. I don't think the input that that Hervé and and uh, Guy were able to to give the factory KTM's, it didn't look like it was um, enhancing the project too much. No, they'll certainly be wanting more because Laquona's best result was a sixth in that wet Austrian race and uh, Petruccia fifth in France early doors. But Laquona does move on to World Superbikes next year with Honda and, uh, as you said, Petrucci on to Dakar with sticking with KTM. So they're sticking by him. Um, let's move on, though, as you've done so with the factory racing team. They were sixth in the teams, two podiums, two wins. Uh, Binder and Miguel Oliveira. Miguel Oliveira, you know, just with all the changes that have come sort of mid-season and now in the off-season, Miguel Oliveira had a great run of form early on, you know, three podiums in a row, including a win. And then since the summer break, that seemed to have just sort of petered off quite big time. And then Brad Binder on the other side, fairly consistent, at least with with good point scoring positions. Combination of things, though, isn't it? I think that the fact is, is the team seemed to pick up the pace. There, you know, everyone seemed to start getting it together everywhere. And and I think if you've got bikes that aren't, I mean, KTM had a disastrous year, really. <laughs> I don't think we can say anything other than that. Sixth for the factory KTM. You know, I think they will be, and it matters. You know, for the manufacturer, the manufacturer is more interested in the manufacturer tri- titles than they are in the riders' titles. And I think that KTM um, haven't got much um bang for their buck pete <laughs> i mean you've got to imagine that this, this whole change with mike Lightner. i mean we don't know the reasons for it ktm they don't want to say anything bad about mike i mean he helped them set up the team but you've got to believe that this as you say the, the performance of Oliveira, the maybe the the lack of i think they expected a title challenge didn't they let's bet let's put it that way after last season winning three races they thought right we take the next step now and we fight for the world championship and instead, I mean, they were never really in that fight. They had this strange season, didn't they, where they started off badly. They had a few good races in the middle. Those those three races by Oliveira, second, first, second or something. And then it dropped away again, which is really, you know, usually you get a team sort of gets better as the year goes on or they go downhill if you're, you're Zarco or something, but but not sort of in the middle and then down without an injury or anything. I mean, I know Oliveira hurt his hand, but I mean... It, as you say, I think he, he scored 76 points more in the first half of the season than he did in the second. I mean, it, it was a huge drop. And I, I think it's got to be a concern for them. They've, they've got to try and understand why. Brad Binder was held back by his qualifying, really, wasn't he? I don't think he... He was barely in the top six on the grid. And and so, you know, he made the step forward, if you like, from his rookie year in terms of the championship. But, you know, they had they had two wins. But, I mean, let's face it, that, that win in Austria in the rain, that was, that was just Brad Binder... That was a brave ride. I mean, it, you couldn't claim that was the bike or, or, or even the team decision, could you? So, so really, they had the Oliveira win was it was a straight up performance win in Catalonia, and I think they expected more than that. As you, as you say, at Tectoire, you always you always uh, or you sometimes see when a when a factory team struggles, the satellite team struggles more because the factory team puts all their focus on sorting things out, as, as you would. And that means the, the satellite team, I, I don't know if that's what happened here, but the satellite team sometimes gets left to their own devices while the factory team sorts out the problem. Look at Honda as well. You know, they're throwing parts of the Repsol bikes. The LCR bikes are, are left to, to use what they can find whilst they get sorted with the factory bikes. And maybe that's what happened here. I mean, Petrucci, his size never fitted with the KTM. The fairing was always the wrong size. I don't know why it was homologated because they were allowed to homologate a new fairing this year of a size that was too small for him. And I think that, uh, you know, he just never fitted the bike and that was that. I mean, we saw him, as you say, Harry, fifth in the rain. He proved he could still ride in the wet, but in the dry, it was never really 
happening for him. And Lacona just seemed, you mentioned the falls earlier, you know, he, he fell more times than any other rider. He was just seemed desperate to try and impress. Probably quite reasonably, he knew his ride was on the line. And, and as it turned out, it was too late for him to, to impress enough to stay in MotoGP. So a difficult year for all of the KTMs, as you say, and, it, and next year will be a big year. And with these big changes in the management as well, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Guidotti, remember, he's not just, I mean, he's brought through a lot of riders from Pramac to the factory team. You know, now, was that something that KTM were really interested in? You know, Andrea Inoni, Banyaya, Miller, Petrucci, all of them came from Pramac went to the factory team and won races. You know, are they looking at their factory riders, particularly Oliveira, and thinking, we're not getting the most out of him here and we need someone, you know, maybe Guidotti will be better at, at understanding what the riders need. You know, we don't know the exact reasons, but certainly that's that's possible, I think. Well, uh, certainly, I think it's fair to say KTM not happy with their season at all. Binder sixth in the standings, the best of them all. Oliveira down in 14th, uh, 94 points to his name, 151 uh, for Binder. Uh, moving on to fourth in the constructors, shall we, in Honda. Um, and let's go with LCR Honda, first of all. Seventh in the teams, a best result of fourth. Alex Marquez, the best, uh, achieving that best in the Algarve. Close to a podium, which wasn't too shabby. Nakagami, also a best of fourth uh, in Spain. But I think we spoke a lot about this. Fairly incident prone and threw away a lot of potentially good results, which seems to be a sort of case of, of Nakagami's past few seasons. Keith, uh, Honda, though, in trouble a bit. Yeah, they've been in trouble really for a few years. I, I mean, it's... I mean, all their eggs were in the basket of Mark Marquez for so long. I think that, that you know, after Mark's arm in injury, they've obviously had to start listening to other riders and start moving things around. I mean, we can go back to our own Cal Crutchlow. You know, Cal was a guy that would ride a you know garden gate effectively and make it work because he was a tough character that could work his way around it. But, you know, Alex Marquez isn't his brother. Um, Takanakagami, well... Is it fair to say that if it wasn't for nationality, he might not still be where he is? You know, he shows those flashes of brilliance, but right now people are looking at, you know, those flashes of brilliance in a more consistent manner. And Taka hasn't really managed to do that quite as well as maybe he should be doing at this time in his MotoGP career. Um, Having said that, I'm a fan of Nakagami. And again, if I refer to Cal Crutchlow, Cal Crutchlow, when Nakagami first came into MotoGP, said, this guy is going to be fast. Um, you know, and, and when you're another you're, you're rider and you're riding with someone as a teammate, you see things that we can't when we're watching him from the telly. So, you know, perhaps next year will be Nakagami's year. There are cleverer people than me that are, that are making these decisions on the ground, in the paddock, that are seeing, seeing what Nakagami is doing with the tools he's got. But you're right about Honda. Honda have been in a little bit of trouble right the way through the factory team, through to LCR, Lucio Cecinello's team. And Lucio is is similar, in my view, to to, to the Tectoire guys of, of Coulon and Poncherel in that he's brilliant. He understands. He's died in the war. He understands everything there is to understand about motorbike racing. He's been there and done it quite literally. Um, but again, the team perhaps, you know, haven't quite come up to expectations. <laughs> Has any Honda? <laughs> no. Nakagami's one of those guys that you think if he could just get that podium, maybe it would be the turning point. But you just worry that the pressure is building on him and it's, it, and it's getting to him, isn't it? That, that he, 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 he gets near 
being able to fight for the podium and then it, it doesn't happen. And I think the setbacks are adding up and, it, it, I, I, you know, he needs to... He hasn't... Both riders, Alex and Nakagami, they didn't take the step from last year, did they? You know, Alex Marquez was on the podium at Repsol Honda and, and never really looked like being on the podium this year. Nakagami was on pole. He was he was in positions to get podiums. He, he wasn't too far off. He had, he had a few chances at fourth at Jerez, but... It didn't happen again. And ultimately, as you say, it has to happen. You have to cross the line in that position. You know, you can only be close so many times before people say, well, you know, you have to make it. You have to actually do it now. And as you say, you look at Moto2, you look at Ayagura, and you think, well, look, there's a there's a Japanese guy coming up through riding for Honda Team Asia. I mean, you know, the clock is ticking for Nakagami to get the results that, that that his speed suggests he can. You know, he's a he is a podium guy. He is capable of pole positions, but he's he's got to start delivering it. It's a big year for him this year. You got the feeling that twenty twenty three World Superbikes might be full of a lot of MotoGP guys. <laughs> Wouldn't be uh, too shocked at that. Well, just capping off LCR Honda, it was uh, Marquez ended in sixteenth in the standings and Nakagami fifteenth in the standings. But let's talk about the big team, Repsol Honda, fifth in the team's best result, of course, those three wins, uh, courtesy of Mark Marquez, Germany, USA, and uh, the Emilia Romagna at Grand Prix. Also, uh, Stefan Bradl taking a, a few rounds of that as well. Um, Espargo, best result of second. But unfortunately, with that big crash of Valencia to cap off the season, wasn't a brilliant way to end. And a pole position earlier on, of course, in Silverstone highlight. And Marquez, I suppose, it was all about the recovery at the start, slowly getting better and better. Yes, he was crashing all the time, but he was getting back up and he was riding well. And he got that first win in Germany. And then, is it the downfall after another crash, a big crash in, in a... Uh, not even on, on track in MotoGP, but, uh, you know, while he was uh, uh, testing. So not not the best end for Marquez for what seemed like a really good sort of steady right way moving forward. This is the crux for Honda completely, isn't it? You know, Mark Marquez may never ride a motorbike, MotoGP bike again. Um, we just don't know. And I think the truth of it is they don't know. They put... All their eggs, Honda have put all their eggs in Mark Marquez's basket a few years ago. The development of the bike went the way it went. When the electronic rules changed, I think that wrong-footed Honda massively. They had probably one of the best electronics packages on a, on a motorcycle. Um, and they designed the, the motor all around the control package that they'd got in the inertial platform and the ECU and so on. And I think what happened when they went to the spec ECU across all of the MotoGP bikes in agreement with the, the manufacturers in the end, Honda had to, to you know, toe the line. Um, that really had put Honda in a difficult position. Marquez could ride around it, but nobody else seemed to be able to. And that was the brilliance of Mar Marquez. This eye injury that he has for the second time, when was it? Back in 2011 when he had it last time. Um, you know, can he recover from this? You know, we're all hoping he does because, I mean, MotoGP will be a lesser place without the great Mark Marquez. There's no doubt in my mind of that. There'll be a few people that disagree. Of course there will. But um, Mark Marquez is a brilliant motorcycle racer. And he's he's not a bad bloke at all. He's a professional, you know, he's a great guy, really. Good family. Good, you know, I, I, I can't, he's like, I think I've said it before on here. He's, he, he reminds me of the, the David Beckham of, of bike racing. And as much as there's people that actually take a swing at David Beckham, but what's not really to like, you know, he's an icon. He's, he's, he's good at, or he was good at what he did and, you know, so on and so forth. But Marquez 
not here in 2023, I tell you what, that would be an absolute disaster for Honda. That could put them back years. You know, it's going to be really tough to recover from from having no Mark Marquez in 2023. And yet I've got it in my heart. It feels like that's that could be a reality. We, we just don't know what's going on, do we? And this is this is the big worry at the moment. We don't know about the accident, for example. I mean, we haven't heard anything ha- since it happened, have we? That's right. I mean, yeah. it was a train. We know it was an enduro accident, a training accident. I think it was with a guy called Joseph Garcia, who's an enduro world champion. He's not slow. <laughs> and so if Mark was riding with him, I mean, he, he rides a bit like Mark, flat out. Um, now, but the problem is, what sort of an accident caused this injury? Because the worry is, I mean, you know, can it happen again? I mean, that's the big worry now, isn't it? Of course it of can. Course. I mean, this, yeah, this, this, yeah, I mean, we don't know how unusual, what I mean is we don't know how unusual this accident was or what the circumstances were, because was it just, an, a, you know, a bit of a tip off and suddenly you get an injury? Well, that could happen every time you fall off a MotoGP bike, couldn't it? So that's the big worry for me at the moment is, 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 is this going to be repeatable? I mean, what, what do the doctors say? We don't know. As I say, we don't even know the circumstances of the accident, how big an accident it was. It would almost be better if it was a, if it was a massive accident, because it would be, ah, okay, well, hopefully then, you know, he can avoid another massive accident and his eye will be okay. But It's like everything else though, Pete, once you've weakened it, you know, you're talking about an eye for God's sake. I mean, it's, it's, can there be any more delicate, unit on your body than an eye i mean it's it's just one of them things where i mean they are remarkable things but but it, it's so delicate in the way it's hooked up to the to the back of your bonds and so on and so forth i mean I, as you can tell by the way i'm talking about it i've got no clue but <laughs> it's it's one of those things where you know a mechanical injury like a bone like his arm you know yeah he's uncomfortable and it's taken him a long time to come back from the from that injury but it's bolted together and it looks pretty strong you can't do that with an eye you know the the stuff in the back of an eye is sort of you're talking, you know, fiber optic type technology. I don't know whether we even have the technology to fix that kind of stuff. And you're right. How big was the bang on the head? However big it was, the fact is, is that it's caused the same injury as he had previously. So you've got to reckon on that basis that it's going to take less of a clout to cause the same injury a third time is my rather basic theory. Um, and that's if he can come back. You know, if he's seen double vision, which apparently he has in both the cases, you know, okay, he might be able to live a normal life with that, but you, you can't race 200-mile-an-hour motorbikes seeing double. It just doesn't work. So I think all we can do is at Christmas time wish that man all the best, hope to see him fully fit come next year, and hope he doesn't suffer from this injury into the rest of his life. I think the best case scenario, isn't it, if we if we go back to the 2011 accident, is he's probably going to miss testing. So either way, even if the best case scenario happens and he recovers at the same rate as he did last time, it's, he's doubtful he's going to make these tests. So he's going to go into the season. Honda are going to go into the season behind again. It puts them back. And, and you, you were talking about Marquez and riding the bike. And he, he was interesting when he came back this year, wasn't he? Because he, Mark sort of separates things. He'll say things about the parts of the bike like, well, it feels better, but it's slower. And I've never really heard riders say that, but he's able to pick what, what he regards as maybe parts that don't feel as good because he's able to go quicker on them. Whereas for most riders, if they feel good, they feel more confident, they go quicker. But I think that sort of seemed to be what Mark said about the bike that had been developed while he was away. It kind of felt better, but it wasn't as quick when you pushed it to the absolute edge as he did. And I think they don't have, you know, so they've got this split in, in what the riders are asking for, maybe. You know, Marquez just wants the fastest possible bike. 
the other riders want more controllability. Let's, so, let's give some context on that. A slower bike always feels easier to ride. A bike that's easier to ride generally is slower. The fact is, is that, you know, I have direct comparisons to make here. Don't laugh now. It was in black and white. It was a long time ago. I know, folks. When I got a factory ride for Suzuki, uh, the factory bike felt terrible. It felt awful. It would not do what my pre the production 500cc back in the day, Grand Prix bike that I had. That was an easy bike to ride, and I was fast on it. Then I get a factory bike, which is fast, and it is the most difficult motorbike to ride. And you have to find a way of making that. The reason why it's awkward to ride is because it's fast and it does things differently. And you've got to get around those situations. Mark Marquez can separate each zone of the bike. He, this is why he's so good at what he does and why Honda absolutely cherished him for as long as they, they have. He can make the difference. And it's all very well getting on a fast factory bike. But sometimes, you know, Yamaha, when they finally get down to their their whatever they've got in the pipeline of production for next year, it might be a faster motorbike. They've been banging the drum about it being a faster motorbike. That doesn't mean it's going to be faster overall on the track in the hands of the people that are actually going to be riding it. It might be a more difficult motorbike to ride. As soon as you've got a bit more horsepower or it performs in a different kind of uh, place, if you like, the power is, is different, both on, on off-throttle and on-throttle. I mean, it's, it works both ways. It's, it's a very, very complex situation. Once you move one part of the jigsaw puzzle, the old bloody picture changes. And and I think that, that we're going to see a bit of that next year anyway, but particularly with Honda, I think it's absolutely stark. Um, Marquez has the skill to be able to get around that stuff. His brother, I don't think, does. Polis Barbro uh, grits the, t- the screen and just rides the what's-its off the thing. And, uh, you know, Polis Bargro has perhaps, can I say, underperformed this year. I, ex- I expected more from Pol this year um, just because he was the kind of rider I thought would be able to grab that honda by the horns um but he hasn't really um been able to do that consistently big loss mark marquez if uh, if he doesn't come back for testing honda are going to be at sea all year long and everyone else will be a year in front of them i think i think absolutely as you say paul must have expected he would at least do as well as he did on the ktm when he moved to Repsol Honda, and he made clear, you, you join Repsol Honda, you joined to, to fight at the front of MotoGP, and then he just struggled with this rear grip problem, didn't he, all year? I guess the positive thing for Honda, if there is one, is this this all-new bike seems to address that now, you know, and Pole seems to like it, so we need to see if it does give the, the other riders, not Mark, the, what they're looking for here, and we just don't know what Mark really will think about it because he's not going to get the chance to test it. Well, he, he missed the Hareth test, When's he going to ride it again? It might not be until free practice at a Grand Prix. So we don't know what he'll exactly think of the finished product. Well, I think we will all echo Keith's sentiments. I think this Christmas we'll be crossing our fingers and and wishing uh, Marquez the best recovery possible and a speedy recovery at that and hope that Honda can... uh, come out fighting uh, next season. Um, let's move on then. We're into the top three now and the constructors and third, Suzuki, the team Suzuki team, the sole Suzuki team, of course, third in the team's best results, second three times um, with Rins and Mir. Rins, I think it's fair to say, not the uh, season perhaps he would have been uh, wanting, uh, full of a lot of incidents, but did get that second place at Silverstone and then Joanne Mir, 
the defending champion, no longer. Best result of second in uh, Styria, but also the Algarve as well. Third place in Aragon, the, ne the Netherlands, Italy and Portugal. So uh, fighting performances from Jaime, but just didn't look like they really had the machinery to, to fight really for, for the championship titles this season. How much did they miss Davide Brivio? Is my question. You know, I think he went off to Alpine um, Formula is One. Is he coming back? Well, that's the question, isn't it, Harry? I think um, the rumour has it that he definitely is coming back to Suzuki. It's funny how that tiny piece of coordination sometimes just puts that ripple through the team, that, that link between rider, crew chief, and then factory. What you said in the build-up to Suzuki was is, is very important in that they are the only two bikes out on the track that Suzuki are, are, are bringing to the table. And I think that that is going to show even more starkly next year with eight Ducatis on track and the big factory push from Ducati. Suzuki may feel find themselves falling a little bit behind. You know, it's not been a great year for them. I don't think you can write them off, that's for sure. But they're a bit late to the game with the old whole shot device and the shapeshifter system that, that by the time that Ducati had, had developed theirs to the nth degree was clearly a good system and Suzuki's was a bit agricultural in comparison I think and that's and that put them back a little bit because there is no doubt there are there there is time um involved in in that in other words track time saving on lap times so I don't know Suzuki have got quite a lot to do it'd be interesting to see what developments they bring they've been very good over the years of of subtle innovation that have made what is a beautiful motorbike for me the Suzuki is the, the most beautiful bike on the racetrack you know from day one when they first brought it to Sepang going back to the test when they first came back to the MotoGP um, I just love the bike but it just seems to have um, gone a bit soft on them for the for the 2021 season be interesting to see what Hamamatsu have come up with for next year I think their first priority is to hang on to Joan Mir. I think that's, the, you know, I mean, he's the guy, if you look at people, maybe Quattararo as well, he'll obviously be, people will be throwing contract offers at him as the world champion. But I think Joan Mir, if you look at someone who is, is in a situation where he's not completely happy with the bike that he had this year, that makes, you know, Suzuki vulnerable to losing him, doesn't it? And they need to respond. And I think they did respond well at the Hareth test. They had both, you know, Guintoli, Suda, two test riders coming over. They made a big, a big effort, a big visual effort as well. You know, Mia would have seen, okay, this is, you know, they're putting in the effort now. This is what I want to see. But I think, you know, that that's their first priority because who would have said that Juan Mia wouldn't even lead a single lap this year? I mean, to go from world champion to not leave and leave, let alone a race win. I mean, I think Nicky Hayden was at 07 is the last time a champion didn't win a race the following year. I mean, he didn't even leave a, lead a lap. I mean, Rins did at least lead some laps. I mean, let's give him that. But I mean, and, and Rins actually, of course, nowhere in the championship and all of those mistakes, which I mean, you know, but he was actually ahead of Mir in, in I think, most of the times when he fell off. So the one thing he can... He can say is well, he wasn't slow when he did fall off, but clearly you can't be having those many mistakes. But he does make cycling. too many mistakes, doesn't he? Unforced errors, Pete. I think that's the trouble with him. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, and cycling into the back of a van while you're talking on the phone. Oh, I mean, that just—if yeah. you were looking for a low point of the season, it doesn't—it doesn't get any lower than that, does it? Um, <laughs> that's a classic unforced error. <laughs> <laughs> Crashing your push bike into the back of a van. I shouldn't laugh because it hurt, but honestly, how do you do that? 
on a racetrack as well, not on not the racetrack. I mean, yeah. it, it always yeah. amazes yeah. me yeah. that you know, um, an empty racetrack. I, I have this conversation with uh, with my daughters. Obviously, from from a very young age, you always say to them, "Don't step onto a zebra crossing without looking." Well, Dad, we've we've got right of way. I said, "Yeah." When you're laying up the road with a broken leg, you can argue <laughs> that later. <laughs> you're supposed to look where you're going, <laughs> and you're supposed to look at idiots that haven't seen the zebra crossing. But to, for a racer to actually miss a man <laughs> when you're riding your push bike. It is laughable, but there you go. I kind of, I kind of underlines Rins a little bit, though, doesn't it? it j- there's just something in his vision that he doesn't see. Do they still have those uh, those hedgehog adverts for kids crossing the road where you've got to look, look left, look right, then look left again, and then you might be all right? I, uh, I go I go back to the Green Cross code with the bloke in the green suit. You won't even remember it. Look it up no, in YouTube. Yeah. Um, but the but the fact is, I mean, kids, it's all very well being right, but. <laughs> You're the one laying in the road that's hurt. You may well end up paying the price, exactly. Well, yes, uh, but as the sole Suzuki, the only Suzuki-powered team, uh, third um, with two, uh, three, three second places as their best results, Rins 13th in the end in the standings, mere third uh, with 208 points. But as you say, Pete, no win and not even uh, leading any laps that leaves them wanting for next season. Uh, now, I'm going to go actually to Ducati next because uh, I want to save... Yamaha, Yamaha for uh, the end. But uh, we're going to go to our constructors' winners. Um, Ducati, of course, will have the most amount of uh, bikes powered by them next season. Uh, this year, of course, they had uh, Marini and Bastianini as part of their sort of VR46 Avintia team. And uh, Marini, rookie season, best result of fifth in Austria, moves to officially VR46 in 2022. And Bastianini, another rookie, best result of third. And he'll go to uh, Grassini Racing for 2022. How did you make of uh, the two rookies? Well, Bastianini was outstanding. Yep. I think that Bastianini was was bordering on brilliant. Uh, Marini had the kind of year that you might expect. Um, but I think Bastianini was just, you know, where'd it come from? It, it just goes to show you, doesn't it? We had Quattararo, you know, won, won a, a, a Motor 2 race. Well, two if you include the one I think he was disqualified from. But... And then came into MotoGP and and Sean and Bastianini steps in and and wow, <laughs> and he looked bloody good on it all the time as well. Um, I mean, Ducati deserve to win the, the the constructors championship. I mean, they they have been innovative, they have been clever, they have been they put their money and effort into developing their bikes within the rules during the course of a year where it's been difficult from that point of view because of the the, you know, the obviously the, the the tech freeze on motors and so on and so forth. There are a lot of things you can't do when a motor has got, you know, technical constraints. Um, but they've worked their way around those motorbikes. I would say that there's going to be a lot of worried manufacturers next year. Um, but again, the rules are probably wide enough for somebody very clever to come up with something again, just that little bit of a surprise. And, you know, people like Suzuki, you know, they're, they're not dim <laughs> sitting back there working on on some some really interesting stuff and i you know suzuki might just come up with it okay they've only got two bikes and ducati got eight maybe they'll be too spread too thinly ducati for 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 their developments for next year we'll wait and see but i think they deserve the constructors championship the manufacturers championship purely and simply because they have been absolutely brilliant they've also been brilliant the way they've managed their riders which which comes down to the team's thing i mean you just you know, Bagnaia in the in the closing half of the closing third of the season has been just honestly, and it anybody not got him as the man to beat next year? He's top of my list. 
you've just got to say, I mean, Ducati, brilliant year, as you say, but once again, they're still waiting for this world championship, aren't they? You know, they, it's still, this only championship is Casey Stone in 2007. I mean, it just something, I mean, how many times they finished second now? They've had three times with Dovi. Now they've had Banyaya, you know, they, you, as you say, Keith, you've got to imagine on paper that next year they're, going, they're the favourites. But at the moment, something seems to happen, doesn't it? And, and But it's hard to look beyond them, you know, at the moment. I mean, that dominant finish to the season, incredible. I guess the only surprise really was that I think they expected Jack Miller to lead their challenge this year, didn't they? Now, in, in, I find Jack really difficult to sum up his season because when he was signed at the start of 2020, which didn't happen because of COVID, he was sort of Petrucci's replacement, wasn't he? And so he was sort of the number two next to Dovi. And then Dovi left and you found Jack suddenly became the number one and, and Banyaya came in and Banyaya was in competition with Zarco, remember? Um, so, you know, if you look at Jack's performance, you know, two wins, first wins in the dry against Petrucci, it, it was a good season. But then you look at what Banyaya did and, and suddenly you think, wow, you know, he's, he's under pressure there. And I think... Banyaya just outperformed all expectations this year, didn't he? And, and if he carries on like that, I mean, if he picks up where he left off, not just at the end of the racing season, but at the end of the test as well in, in Hareth, I mean, he's going to be tough to beat. And, and certainly he's riding this wave of confidence. And as you say, Ducati, technically, they seem to have all of these parts in line for a bike that is already, as Banyaya says, nearly perfect. So, yeah, you know, the others have got to be worried. And as again, to go back to bang on about the 2023 contracts, there's going to be some riders that go, I'd like to be on that bike in 2023. Jack Miller, I think is the way that Jack Miller goes about his business. He's tough. He's funny. He's, he's, he's the kind of guy that you would make the mistake of thinking that um, he's a bit too casual, but underneath all of that is a guy that's quite calculating as well. And he'll be working on what went wrong during the course of this year. I'm fairly sure of that. I think Jack Miller will be back with a bit of a bang next year. You know, not having a team leader all of a sudden and finding yourself as a team leader, if you like, sometimes it's a bit tricky. Um, Ducati is a good family. They'll nurture Jack, and I think Jack will be back with a bit of a bang next year. I've got a feeling for, for Jack as well. But will it beat Banyaya? Do you know what it always comes down to? It comes down to who gets the first injury. You know, the, the, By the time we get halfway through the season, every one of these riders has had an injury of some kind or another through either testing or, or, or racing. And um, you know, you, there's a certain amount of luck that comes into that um so factor that in when we're making our decisions maybe <laughs> well yeah you talk of uh injury and we, we've i suppose we've covered the top ducati team and we've covered the bottom ducati team let's cover the middle pramac um and jorge martin joanne zarko martin rookie of the year but did have that huge injury which uh saw him miss quite a few rounds but still showing able to come back from that and you imagine straight away still still in recovery mode but still looking and showing some strong form on the other side joanne zarko uh, he, he was my he was my champion. Uh, I got that one wrong, but he certainly looked like he was the only one at, in the early part of the season that was really you know challenging Fabio Quartararo to begin with, but then faded away uh, in the second half. Best result of second in the end, didn't get a win on the board. Um, but Pramac, a strong lineup it seems they've got there though. Yeah, I think good and bad for Jorge. I mean, unlucky for him, obviously, early on. And he did come back well from that. So I'm not even going to really talk much about him because next year is a, a new year and he'll be looking forward to it. Zarco, I still think, underperformed, as obviously you do as well because you picked him for the year. But um, it's it's one of those situations with Zarco. 
there's a man who thinks sometimes a little bit too much. I get the feeling, you know, sometimes you can just shut that bit of your brain off that, that does the thinking and, and keep the other side that does the riding. Um, he's a very, very good motorbike racer, but could you ever see him winning a world championship or, or being able to threaten for one? I can't, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, it, 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 he'll have a good ride, then he won't have a good ride. And it's, it's kind of, he's a unique personality and he's great for the paddock, but would you put money on him? Other than you, Harry, no. <laughs> Thank God I didn't put any real money on him. <laughs> what do you mean? I thought you've got money on the table, Harry. <laughs> maybe next year. Maybe next year we'll, we'll up the ante. But Pete, would you, would you agree with the, with those sentiments? I think it was such a split year, wasn't it? At the, at the end of the first seven races, when he got all of his podiums, he did look like a championship contender. And then it just suddenly stopped. And it was so strange because we're, we're just talking about Banyaya's end of season being so great. You know, he, he really went upwards and, and Zarko went downwards on the same bike. You know, did something happen with the, you know, that the suited other riders? I mean, who knows? There was never really a clear explanation, a bit like with Oliveira, as to why there was this, this sort of massive drop in points during the second half of the season for Zarko and Oliveira. Um, you know, they were the two guys that really lost out compared to earlier on in the year. And, yeah, you know, it was it was it was Zarka's best year. You can say that much. I mean, you know, it was Pramac's highest position in the championship. But when your teammate's a rookie and he wins a race, you know, I mean, Zarko needed to win, didn't he, this year? I think everything was there, and it would have made such a, a difference for him going into this new year if he was already a MotoGP winner, having tried for so long. He was a champion in Moto Two. If he can revive that consistency, you know, who knows? Can he do it? But. Yeah, you've got to believe that momentum is with is with Jorge Martin, and and you know Zarco needs to, as he says, he's going to try and and look at what Banyaya is doing, you know, the way that he's riding the Ducati, and incorporate some of that because that's clearly the way forward. You know, Banyaya has shown if you can ride the bike with so much faith in the front of the bike, as he has, the speed you can have can be untouchable. So Zarco's job is to try and get on terms with with the best guys on that bike. It's always quite amusing when you hear that, I think, because the psychology and the you know, riders are tired by the time you get halfway through the season. It's a tough, tough, tough year. And the psychology of seeing youngsters come and go faster than you, um, again, we've all had it. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to go back to 1987, um, South African series on production bikes. Um, we all flew down there for this series that Mick Grant had um, put together. We never did get paid, by the way. Mick, you still owe me 800 quid. Um, <laughs> but, the point, but the point being is that there was a young Mick Doohan. I just won a, a British championship, the 87, whatever it was. And um, Doohan and I were both running FZ 750 Yamahas. And, yeah, chest feathers out. I'm the, I'm the fastest guy on an FZ in the, in, the, in the world. And then about three laps in, I got my ass handed to me by Mick Doohan, who was about 16 at the time. And I'd never quite seen anything like it. And I, I, and I couldn't get back on terms with that. And I, didn't, I still don't know to this day how much of that was psychological and how much of that was down to the motorcycle. It couldn't have been down to the motorcycle. We were riding the same motorcycle. And it, it's kind of, it brings you down in a way that you can't work your way around your own problems. You suddenly focus, start to focus on something else rather than what you should be focusing on is yourself. Obviously, Doohan went on to prove just what a massively talented man he was. Um, but back in the day when he was raw, sat in the corner of a stinking bloody, you know, pit garage in the middle of nowhere in South Africa to, to win the series. Um, spectacular. Uh, I think Zarco will have the same problems next year as he's had this year. It doesn't matter what he does with the bike. Um, you, you hear it all the time. Repsol Honda, 
Who could ride a motorbike like Mark Marquez? Nobody. Cal Crutchlow used to say, I've got all the data. I can see what he's doing. I know exactly what, what he's doing with the motorbike and how he's doing it and what his setup is, which will be the same as Arco. He'll be able to see what Banyaya's got and doing with his bike. But making yourself do it, you know, Cal used to come back in and say, I'll just crash if I rode it like Mark does, um, and quite often did. But uh, that is the story, I'm afraid, that, that motorcycle riders make the difference to these bikes. If we make the analogy with perhaps Formula One, if you stick a fast guy in the fastest Formula One car, he will inevitably win, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to Hamilton and George Russell next year. George Russell had that opportunity in the Mercedes and was faster than everybody, despite a puncture and a cocked up pit stop um, by Mercedes yeah. at the time. So maybe, you know, in bikes, the rider makes the difference. You can be on the same bike, same stuff, have all the, the, the data that you want from everyone else around you. And, and Zarco will have seven other sets of data to look at for next year. But what it does do in the end is fry your brain on a bike, trying to work your way around it from bits of paper and, and graphs on screens. At the end of the day, it's, it's you've got to do the job. You've got to make the difference. And right now in Ducati, it's Bangnaya that's doing that. Absolutely. Well, uh, at the end of it all, I suppose, well, Zarco ended fifth, uh, Jorge Martin ninth, and then uh, in the uh, the junior team, I suppose, or the rookie team, it was uh, Luca Marini 19th, Bastianini 11th, uh, and they took their teams eighth in the team standings, and of course, Ducati first in the teams, uh, Jack Miller fourth, Banyaya second in the end after that uh, that crash uh, saw Quartararo take the championship, uh, but he really was the, uh, the challenger in the end. Let's... Uh, finish then uh, our team rundown with uh, second in the constructors but I suppose they provided a lot of the talking points throughout the season Yamaha uh, of course made up of the uh, Petronas Yamaha SRT team uh, to begin with uh, with Rossi, Morbidelli, Davizioso in the end with Garrett Gerloff, Jake Dixon in there too and uh, then the Monster Energy Yamaha team Morbidelli, Vinales and of course Fabio Quartararo who took the championship let's start with SRT, Dovi brought in good practice for 2022, I think is sort of what can be said for that. But it was, of course, Valentino Rossi's final ever season. Best result of eighth in Austria. Morbidelli starting the season with a, a podium in Spain. But that injury he picked up, I think it was his knee, wasn't it? Really put pay uh, to, to his season. And when he came back this time uh, with the promotion to the big team, still not fully recovered. Um, but looking like he uh, will make a big step next year. Let's start with the SRT team. Thoughts thoughts on that? And of course, actually, it's just come out, hasn't it, that Rosali believes that actually signing Rossi was perhaps the wrong move. Well, and who, who anywhere on this blog, vlog and the like didn't think that in the first place. It was a poison chalice. It was always going to be a poison chalice because if, you know, Valentino Rossi, the biggest name in the world, I mean, it's fantastic for Petronas and for Yamaha to have the greatest man in the world, the GOAT, greatest of all time, riding in their satellite team, you know, every poster that was ever done, Petronas and so on, you know, will have Valentino Rossi on it. His final ride was with Petronas um, and will be remembered forever. Uh, unfortunately, Morbidelli, who the, pinned their hopes on for, for the performances, I would suggest, um, picked up that injury and so their year was completely shot. Um, Valentino, 42 years old, 
it couldn't be anything else, Harry, at the end of the day. It's a satellite team. It, you know, Okay, the bikes are supposed to be the best, but of course what happens is, is you end up with, you don't have as many technicians that are working on your bike. When they've got problems in the factory team, Pete's already said it, everybody works on the factory bikes first. The factory team is the number one priority to get that where it needs to be. You know, Quattararo was doing the business in the factory team they needed to really keep that going he was the only man that did the business really for Yamaha in the entire year if it hadn't been for Quattararo they wouldn't be anywhere really I mean it's it's remarkable I mean that's why he might have finished up second in the constructors but that was because of Quattararo to great extent um without doubt he scored the, the most manufacturers points that um out of anybody difficult for Rosali Razlan Rosali bit of background. I mean, he was the CEO at Sepang, Sepang International Circuit. Um, really good guy, good guy to deal with. I was introduced to him by a fellow called Mike Morton, who used to be um, a man providing uh, logistics for Jordan Formula One going back in the day. Lives in Thailand, actually just up the road from you, Pete, as it happens, where you are at the moment. So uh, I'll have to introduce you to Mike, a very, very, very good man um, that is very interesting to, to talk to generally. But the fact is, Rosali then had the opportunity to form that Patronus team. Yamaha were really, really struggling and wanted a satellite. They wanted an independent team that they could they could run the process of, of new bits and or, or new thoughts or at least more data out on the racetrack, something Suzuki might be struggling with next year that we talked about earlier. And didn't it work? I mean, it worked unbelievably well. Rosali put together, and in the end, he left. The, the, he's no longer CEO of Sepang. He's now running this team as a, as an independent operation with no Moto three and no Moto two next year, no Valentino Rossi, um, but a massive hill to climb. And if Quattararo is complaining, and I think we can say it was a complaint that Yamaha didn't bring anything of any use to the tests for the full factory team, you can bet your life that Rosali is going to be a long way back in the queue for anything useful for next year. Um, which doesn't bode well, I've got to say, for the for the new team um, that he's running. So Yamaha just don't seem to have got it quite right, and I don't understand why that is with the experience they've got and the opportunities they've had. Having said that, overall, it was the best bike during the course of the year in the hands of Quattararo. It, it looked well at most of the racetracks, but it's still too slow. And at the end of the day, that does count. Yeah, I think I think Rossi's season. Nobody thought it would be as disappointing as it was. Really, I mean, you know, the highlight in a way was that fourth on the grid in, in the very first round, wasn't it? And, and we all thought, oh, you know, this is a, a promising start. Admittedly, he had a bit of a toe, but still. But then after that, it just went downhill. But I, I think that the most positive thing then was really the the end of the season. You know, the final race, wasn't it? That he was at least able to go out with that that competitive ride because I think after Kota he was 21st in the world championship he was last of the full-time riders you know and he was able to sort of claw himself up from that and then we had Valencia and he, he wanted to go out with the respectable showing uh, you know what 13 seconds behind which I think a couple of years ago would have been good enough for what fourth place from what I can see so you know that just shows how everything else has moved on and he's sort of not been able to move at that rate but that's MotoGP now and so I think it was the right, you know, it's the right time for him to leave. I think he gave it a shot. I don't, I don't blame him for 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 taking this move. As, as Keith says, he joined the team that won the most races, the most victories by a Yamaha team. They had six wins, three each with Cotteraro and, and Morbidelli. Morbidelli second in the World Championship, of course. So you can't blame him for giving it a shot. I mean, if he if if that form had continued, it would have been a great move. Um, 
you know, it didn't work out. Let's be honest. It, it the results weren't there. And he, you know, even by the time he made his decision, he said it would be about results. He made the decision to retire. And, you know, as we, as we were saying by the quota, he was last, the full-time riders. That's not where Valentino Rossi deserved to finish his final season. And as we say, thank goodness he got that final race in Valencia and he got a competitive showing. And he, you know, he goes out now onto sports car racing with, you know, having a fitting end to his you know, very long chapter as a motorcycle racer. And we wish him well as a dad. Absolutely. He's, uh, he's got, uh, he's got out at the time that he wants to get out and, uh, looking forward to a sports car career. Of course, he's just done a test with an Audi, a GT3 sports car, and will be racing a Ferrari GT car in an endurance race uh, next year. So uh, to see what his year pans out to be in the sports car world and, of course, in the fatherhood world will be uh, certainly one to watch. But he did end up in the end 18th in the standings, uh, just behind Morbidelli, who was 17th. Uh, and Dovi, with those last few races, managed to get 12 points, 24th um, in the standings. OK, let's uh, let's go up to the top team then focus on them a bit more. Um, Monster Energy Yamaha, second in the team standings, six wins for Fabio Quartararo, one, oh, well, I suppose he got five and, and Vinales got one right at the start of the year. Um, Quartararo, world champion, sublime. Vinales started off with a win downhill from there on and off track. And Maverick, I think it's fair to say, single-handedly kept us going with content through the summer break uh, because it was it, it, it really did not end. I don't think anybody could have predicted that. And the way it ended, it really got a bit a bit nasty almost. And you've talked about it, Keith, you know, not just the on track, but how it was affecting him, him mentally and in his head. And, and, you know, getting out was probably the best thing for him at the end of the day and to sign with the prettier. But I don't think we, we thought, we all thought, I think that he would finish the season with, with Yamaha. But then once, once he uh, had the, the rev incidents uh, in, in Austria, it, it was really only one way it was going to end. The pressure you're under in uh, this level of sport is huge. You know, I'm always amazed at how well coached now youngsters are. You know, you've got 14, 15, 16 year olds that that speak after they've had a dramatic race, calmly, maturely. And you think, how on earth is this happening? Why? Maverick Vinales is, is, is his character is more like in keeping with how you would imagine it would be when you're under pressure, you want to throw your helmet about and completely lose it. And you you struggle on rather than what's it's off the bike because you know you're blaming the bike whatever it might be, you know Maverick now though stands out as as a, an unusual individual in in the in the MotoGP paddock in that everyone else seems to have complete control over their emotions they obviously don't you know back behind the scenes there'll be just the same amount of helmet throwing and, and tantrums I'm sure but but Maverick isn't able to control it well enough and it's a it's a it's a part of his makeup that is costing him dearly. There's no doubt about it. He is race-winning material. Any year, you know, the guy is brilliant on a motorbike, always has been, but just can't control his head and his emotions to get that focused on on a consistent um, campaign. I almost feel sorry for, for for Maverick. I genuinely do because I just think he's he's a he's a good guy underneath it all. But you know, when you remember him back as a kid, and what a bright-eyed happy you know young man he was looking forward to a career in bike racing and you see him now with that furrowed brown and a a face that could chop wood you know you think blimey i wouldn't even want to be doing it but it's all all he knows at the end of the day but if it's 
bringing him down to the point where he is. And I can't see it changing that much at Aprilia next year. I really can't see them giving him the type of bike that he wants. And as you said right early on, Aleish. <laughs> Aleish is no pushover. Aleish Spargo is no pushover. He is going to be, you know, trying like mad. And a bloke like Maverick Vinales alongside him is going to motivate him to even greater things because he knows how dangerous Maverick could be once he gets his head straight. So it's, I think the factory team, and again, it's, it, it's the psychology of things. The, the fact that Quattararo was complaining after the test, I call it complaining. And there, there, there was the odd quote that came out that obviously said that he wasn't satisfied with the, with any kind of development that the, the Yamaha had got. In, in fact, they don't sound like they had any development that was of any real use because it, it, it sounded from what he said, like this bike is nowhere further forward. And if that's the case, and he goes into next year with a motorbike that's no further forward, and, and effectively we've got a couple of tests when we get get into next year, but some of them are this new track, Mandalika, the, the the Indonesian track that no one's been to before, so they don't have data sheets and 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 all the stuff that you would normally like to compare when you go to a racetrack when you're testing new bits. So testing new bits at somewhere like a, a, a racetrack that you don't know isn't. It will benefit, but it isn't going to benefit anywhere as much as like going to Sepang or going to Phillip Island or going to one of the classic tracks that you've got data for and you know how you and the bike should be performing on every given corner and breaking point. So, again, you know, we discussed it with Danny Aldridge when he came on this show earlier. You know, I asked Danny at the time, is there any chance of extending the 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 tech closure? You know, when we get to Qatar at the beginning of the year, that's it. Your motor is your motor for the rest of the year if you don't have concessions like Aprilia, um, which could be a disaster for Yamaha. If they've not produced a motor, so they've got basically uh, a couple of tests, one of them at a track that's got no data for, and the other one, if the weather isn't quite right or the track isn't up to speed or some other variable that you get quite often in tests early season, um, Yamaha could screw themselves you know, at the beginning of the year which astounds me that they didn't have anything at the, the, the test at the end of this year. They'll be hoping for a very happy Christmas and a sack full of bits that work, but it ain't as sweet as that, unfortunately. The myth of, uh, if I think about Christmas past, um, that's not very beneficial when it comes to racing bits. It's a process that needs to go through from design to test to factory and uh, round and round and round it goes. And, at the moment, Yamaha don't seem to have got that one quite sorted. I thought Quattararo was quite clever with how he dealt with it. You know, you were talking about, uh, you know, this message that the bike is the same. And he was very, you know, he kept giving this simple message. You know, you clearly wanted to get this across, you know, using the media, as all the great champions do. Marquez did it, Rossi did it. They know when they feel like they need to send a message. And he didn't want to get confused by saying something like, the engine is no better, but you know, the chassis feels good or the errors because that gives a mixed message, doesn't it? Instead, he says, No, the bike feels the same as when we tried it at Mizano, and we need top speed. And at the moment, we don't have anything. And he just and it, and it was just he's just kept giving that simple message to make sure it was getting home that this is what we need. Because can you imagine if, if Yamaha turned up without the engine upgrade now? Because that's the first thing we're all going to ask because he's made so clear. This is the one thing I want. We need the engine. We need the top speed to fight the Ducati. You know, they're going to have to deliver on that because he's given this simple message out there that this is what we need. And forget everything else. Yeah, the chassis might be better, whatever. But he wasn't going to get distracted by 
talking about that kind of thing. And I thought it was quite, it was showing Fabio maturing as a champion and understanding that maybe the, the extra power that you get as a world champion in terms of being able to influence a factory when you feel like, look, we are in trouble here. You know, we, we, Ducati have dominated the end of the season. Fabio and Mia were saying the same things. We need, we need more to fight with the Ducati. And I think it was, it was really clever the way that he just stuck to the simple message of the bike is the same. He made clear that, and he, and he kept repeating it. If you read the Yamaha press release from the test, it was only about two sentences long for Quattararo because that was the only bit he said that didn't involve him saying, we need the engine improved and the bike is the same. So, you know, he just stuck to this message. And I thought that was, it was, uh, I thought he, he dealt with it quite well. And he was very clear, absolutely clear with what he needs. And it's down to Yamaha Isiseki. They've got to come out at Sepang and they need to hope it works pretty well because the second test after that, it's only a few days, is it a week after a few days? There's not much of a gap. You can't make a massive engine change between Sepang and the Indonesia test. And then you're going into the race weekend. Well, no one's going to want to go into the season and homologate an engine that they haven't, even ridden yet you know so it's 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 getting high stakes isn't it for yamaha that they need to get it right first time at sepang now um, and we don't understand you know as you say keith we're all mystified as to why there haven't been these developments given that we've had this technical freeze since the start of last year is it because the yamaha engine guys have been flat out on solving the valve issue that they had at the start of last year did that sort of distract them into you know fixing that and then and then kind of doing something for this year that at least enabled the power to, to remain high enough for Quattararo. But either way, it seems like they're on the back foot in the one area that Quattararo has been talking about all year and he's made clear is the same as of November 2021, which is we don't have the top speed, the straight line performance to fight with the Ducatis. And that's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> Can you fit that into a sack? <laughs> <laughs> well, if he wants to keep his championship, he'll, uh, he'll have to get that underway. Uh, but... Uh... That was uh, Yamaha in second in the team standings in the end. But uh, a big, big year coming next year, I think, for uh, every single team and rider. Uh, but what a year it's been, actually. I think that just about does it. Keith, Pete, I'll leave you with... Uh, well, we'll leave our viewers, shall we, with um, with your highlights from this season. And uh, Keith's... Uh, is that your uh, your advent calendar? That's my advent calendar that, um, that I, I'm going to be getting on with. Actually... I've, I've just reached down. I found a hat for Pete because you know. Obviously oh, I'm going to excellent! Oh, is that a black? You have said... <laughs> a black what's that saying it? Bar humbug. Excellent. Bar humbug. Excellent. Because Pete's not really joined in in the spirit of things, so I'm going to send this to uh, your home address. Pete. <laughs> you, you can have the bar humbug hat. We've got bloody well, Father Christmas in the problem. middle. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I think Keith, if you if you can get back into the paddock next year, I think that's the attire you should be wearing going up. They're not going to the let paddock. me back in the paddock wearing this anyway, are they? <laughs> they're not let me back in the paddock next year yet. <laughs> Hopefully they they do. Um, But go on then. Let's start with you, Keith. Your your highlight of the season, your moments of the season. I don't think it's so much a highlight. I think it's more Bang Nair has been. He is the highlight for me. I mean, he's he's. I I think I bet on him early on in the season, and he he didn't quite Mm. come up to spec. And then later on, he absolutely fulfilled expectations. I think Bang Nair is my highlight of the season. Pete. 
Um, I guess it, su- surprise, I, I think Jorge Martin with that win, I think that surprised me. I think as a rookie and after those injuries to come back and take Ducati's first ever win for a satellite rider, I thought that was, that was exceptional. Um, I thought that the ending of the race in, in Austria with that big rainstorm, it was just chaos, wasn't it? And, and the, some riders are staying out on slick, some aren't. I, I thought that was another, another big surprise for me. Um, and if we're going on the other way, on the, on the downside, I mean, who would have thought, as we were talking about Vinales earlier, you know, this was supposed to be his year, wasn't it? Rossi moves on. He becomes the undisputed kind of leader of the Yamaha team, his best chance. And within half a season, he's, he's joining Aprilia. I mean, who would have seen that? So th- there were plenty of sort of standout moments for me. I cannot wait for the, uh, the MotoGP docuseries to, uh, to come out and see how they've captured the entire season. I reckon there'll be a little bit of playing with what's happened, but uh, that's always got to be expected, I think. A little bit of dramatisation, but uh, don't think much is needed, really, from, uh, from 2022. Uh, we'll see, of uh, 2021 even, we'll see if we'll get that, more of that in 2022. Um, well... With all of that, gents, I think uh, I shall say my thanks for being a part of uh, the podcast this year. We shall return in January to look ahead to the new season. A big, big thank you as well uh, to the entire Crashnet team uh, from all of our written content to the YouTube channel, our wonderful editors, Adrian and Salvador, who really do work wonders. Keith is actually 10 years older than he states. Uh, And uh, our guests this year, of course, you are lovely watchers and listeners. We really couldn't do this without you. So thank you uh, for your support and tuning in every week. Uh, You can keep up to date, of course, with all the very latest in the off season on crash.net. And if you like us, leave us a review on your chosen platform. And uh, well, from myself, Keith, Pete and the entire Crash team, we wish you a very Merry Christmas, happy holidays and a peaceful off-season. Let's recharge and we'll see you in 2022 for more MotoGP action. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.